0: Finally, that's what Paul says in verse 10, finally, Paul tells us that he is beginning to wind down his letter to the Ephesians. He is, in this passage today, going to make the final exhortation to his people, We've been on quite a journey, haven't we? I think uh, an encouraging journey as we've looked through most of these six chapters of the book of Ephesians. It's certainly been a challenging journey. Paul began by looking at orthodoxy in chapters 1 through 3. We explored the glories of Jesus coming as our Redeemer, that redemption being planned from eternity past, the Holy Spirit sealing us in it all, that is involved with with saving faith in Jesus Christ, we've looked at what it means to be a believer, what it means to be a member of the church, those great truths that we find, orthodoxy, right doctrine. And then beginning with chapter four, even through the end of chapter six, the apostle Paul has, has exhorted us to walk in a manner worthy of that calling, that calling to Christ in light of those great doctrinal truths that he has explored in chapters 1 through 3. And so we've, we've looked at many ways we live out right doctrine. Orthopraxis would be a great way to understand the second half of the book of Ephesians, right doctrine. Living, And now we come today to verse 10 and we'll look at verses 10 through 12 where the Apostle Paul gives us the final exhortation, the final way that we live rightly in light of these glorious doctrinal truths he explored with us in chapters 1 through 3. And the Apostle Paul tells us about the war. Now today begins actually a series within a series, I call this the mini-series on the war and you may think that by introducing this message with Paul's word finally that this is the last sermon in Ephesians and you would be wrong. This is the beginning of a mini-series. And we'll be looking systematically for the rest of this year up until Advent in the Not today, the war itself, kind of an overview, but then in the weeks to come, and there'll be breaks, so you won't be hearing me every single week, but in the weeks to come, we'll be looking at this armament that Paul details in the last part of chapter uh, six. And so for today, we'll be looking at the war, the enemy, his tactics. Then I want to add a point, the exhortation. I want to end with what Paul tells us in verse 10. But for today, the war, the battle that the church and the individual Christians are in because of this cosmic conflict that is raging in the heavenly places. And let us pray, and then we'll read our passage for this morning. Father we thank you for your word, we thank you for the clear instruction that we are given and even when we come across difficult passages we are reminded that scripture interprets scripture and that we can appeal to other parts of your word to understand your will for us. Father thank you for these words from the Apostle Paul that were divinely given that we might be encouraged with right doctrine that we might be exhorted to live rightly in light of that doctrine and surely as we come to this this last part of the letter itself we are reminded of all that is at stake in this spiritual battle in which we find ourselves and yet even as we reflect upon all that is at stake you have given us and you have provided all that we need to stand firm in the strength of the Lord and so bless us today encourage us we pray for Jesus sake amen Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through 12 the word of God finally be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might In 1992, an an article appeared in Today in the Word, and it reported that since 3600 B.C. up until 1992, there had been only 292 years of peace in the world. (laughs) That's really a, a, a striking statistic, isn't it? But that statistic only makes sense, it only makes sense that there were 292 years of peace if one only looks at flesh and blood, that is the physical battle and the physical warfare, flesh and blood coming against one another that has taken place since 3600 BC. Christians are in a battle against flesh and blood. Open Doors is an organization that actually looks at and keeps track of persecution of Christians around the world. And at the beginning of this year, they published a report, and this is what they found. Over the last 25 years... The year 2016 was the worst year yet for the persecution of Christians. Can you believe that? And North Korea, it seems like North Korea is in the headlines constantly today. But North Korea is listed and remains and has been number one for some time in the persecution of Christians, they report Christians remain one of the most persecuted religious groups in the world. Christians throughout the world continue to risk imprisonment, loss of home and assets, torture, beheadings, rape, and even death as a result of their faith. I mean, the enemies of God throughout history and the enemies of God today are inflicting great pain and suffering upon our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are in a battle against flesh and blood. And as we think about not only persecution that comes from the outside upon us, Think about the battle that rages within. In fact, I would say for most of us, though very few of us here have been persecuted like our brothers and sisters that are living in North Korea or other places of the world. But we are in a battle. And I would say this battle against flesh and blood, the, the physical realities of this battle really Come to our minds when we think about the battle in our own hearts over being faithful to Jesus when the many temptations come our way. It's a battle due to sin within our own hearts. And so I would say that that the battle that, that the war sure feels like it is against flesh and blood, meaning a physical struggle. Paul found himself time and time again in a real battle against flesh and blood, didn't he? He was persecuted. If you have your Bibles, you can, you can turn to Acts chapter 16, and I'll just read a couple of verses. Acts chapter 16 and verse 37, where Paul says, They have beaten us publicly. Uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. Paul suffered. He was persecuted. He understood that that the battle, that the physical battle, is against flesh and blood. And then he also wrote in Second Corinthians eleven twenty-five. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night in the day I was adrift at sea. Paul knew the realities of this this struggle, this battle against flesh and blood. But, and here's the key point. Paul challenges us, even Paul probably bearing scars in his own body because of the physical struggle against flesh and blood, Paul challenges us to not think of the battle as a battle against flesh and blood because of what he says. He says don't look myopically about this battle, don't, don't view it simply as a physical conflict, though it surely is, he says in verse 12 that the war is against the spiritual forces of evil. Paul tells us clearly that this battle, this war, this conflict is first and foremost above all else given the physical manifestations of it, but first and foremost it is a spiritual battle and I will say this if it is a spiritual battle then the weapons to combat it need to be spiritual we'll get into that in the weeks to come for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the cosmic powers over the present darkness against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places and as we look at verse 12 I believe it's it's best to understand the spiritual forces of evil there at the end of verse 12 being what he says earlier the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers and where do these, these spiritual evil forces dwell? In the heavenly places, it simply means the, not heaven itself where God is enthroned but it simply refers to the spiritual realm the unseen world and what is their domain Paul tells us it's the domain of the present darkness do you remember earlier in Ephesians way back in chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul says this, they were dead, speaking of the Ephesians before they were united to Christ in saving faith. He says, they were dead in their trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And then in chapter 3 and verse 8, for at one time, or in chapter 5 rather, in verse 8, for at one time you were darkness, he tells the Ephesians. But now you are light in the Lord, walk as children of light. And Paul's already broached this this reality that those who are outside of Christ are living in and under the realm of this present darkness with these rulers and authorities and cosmic powers, these spiritual evil forces reigning and subjugating them in slavery to sin, death and eternal damnation. So we've heard over the years that so-and-so, this country aligned with that country aligned with that country, is an axis of evil, right? Well, I'll tell you what, the axis of evil that we have here in Romans, in Ephesians chapter 6, is the axis of evil, if there ever was one these spiritual evil forces that have been behind the battle of God's people from Genesis 3 and will be until Christ returns. The church faces, and we, we need to simply understand this, the church faces a powerful adversary. The war is not only spiritual, but it's personal. Paul mixes metaphors here. We, we definitely have the metaphor of the battlefield, right? Warfare. But we also have the battlefield of, or the metaphor of the gymnasium and the wrestling mat. I know we've got some wrestlers here. I should just have you come up and give us a little uh, insight into wrestling. Wrestling. But it's interesting that Paul uses both the battlefield and the wrestling mat as metaphors to describe just how personal this battle is. One of my favorite all-time movies, and whenever I mention a movie, I'm not suggesting you watch it. I'm just simply using it as an illustration. But one of my all-time favorite movies is the movie Gladiator with Russell Crowe. And the 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 opening battle scene of that movie is the very last battle that Emperor Marcus Aurelius had in his conquest to take over the world. And of course the battle was led by his general Maximus. And, if you, and, and Maximus gives the order, this is, this is the order, he said, unleash hell. And boy ever was it unleashed. There were fireballs flying through the air, uh, crashing upon the enemy. And then the Roman army under Maximus goes forth. And there is the most brutal, graphic, hand-to-hand combat scene that I've ever seen in the movies. I mean, there was dirt flying everywhere, blood flying everywhere, arms flying everywhere. Yeah, it's graphic. It's, I mean, they were body slamming people, stabbing people. And that is the imagery that the Apostle Paul gives us here of just how, how much of a war and how personal it is. Now, you talk to, to people who, who have been on the wrestling mat. And I know some of you ladies, you, you, you don't... I, there are women wrestlers, right? Wrestlers, that's what I call them. <laughs> but I, I, I just don't, I don't think... I'm looking out i don't see any women wrestlers that, 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 here 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 today because I mean you know you got, got everything right, but uh let me tell you you're in a a wrestling match. every Christian is, and i I wrestled very briefly in junior high school and It is just something to behold uh, when you are so personal with another man. And holding in your sweaty bodies, coming in contact with one another, and trying to pin one another, and slamming one another. I mean, I just really, you really have to go shower after you've wrestled. Right, Bill? and hope that you don't come away with some incurable disease. It's just that close. Now I'm being a little hyperbolic here, I'm being a little silly here, but not really. Because I think we can, lull, we can be lulled into a sense that everything is okay. No, we're in a battle, we're in a wrestling match against the forces of evil. And it's just that personal, it's hand-to-hand combat, it is like like these evil forces trying to pin us on a mat. That's how the Apostle Paul describes it here. Very spiritual and very personal. And I fear too few of us really understand it in that way. Though the report mentioned earlier found only 292 years of peace in the world since 3600 B.C., In reality, if we view it the way the Apostle Paul is exhorting us to view it here today, there are zero years of peace. No peace. Because since Genesis chapter 3, Bob read much of Genesis chapter 3 today, and in particular, chapter 3 verse 15, where God is cursing The ancient foe, the serpent, Satan, I will put enmity, God says, between you serpent and the woman, meaning between your offspring, serpent, and between her offspring, Christ. And the good news is the end, the result has already been given. He shall bruise your head. In other words, Jesus is going to inflict a mortal blow upon Satan. Yes, victory. But Jesus' heel shall be bruised. And let me just say, if Jesus' heel shall be bruised, do you think we're going to come out of the battle unscathed? And so my point is, we need to take this war seriously. We need to be mindful of what's at stake. We need to understand that it's spiritual and it's very personal. It is hand-to-hand combat. It is a wrestling match to the death. Well, who is this enemy that, that is referred to in Genesis 3:15? God cursed the, the ancient foe, the, the, the serpent, and he said that there will be enmity between you, Satan, and the seed of the woman, Christ, there will be warfare. And so we see really, the, the, the spiritual warfare ultimately is against the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of Christ, in the, in the, in the heavenly realm. It's been raging since Genesis chapter three. Though we have a glorious note of the end, victory, Jesus will will bring an end to Satan, yet it will be a struggle nonetheless for the people of God, for we have a worthy adversary. And as we look at the enemy, I want us to go back to verse 11, and I want us us to look at the name that is, is given there where Paul says in verse 11, Paul identifies the enemy as the devil. And who is the devil? I just want to run through three things about the devil. And the first thing is he's real. You know, in in, in the Middle Ages, to poke fun at Satan, they they came up with this caricature of this this little red-suited dude with horns sticking out of his head carrying a pitchfork. And it was a satire. It it was a caricature. It was to, to make fun of Satan, and let me tell you something, Satan is no one to make fun of. He's a worthy adversary. He is bent on destroying the church. He's bent on destroying your faith and my faith. Now, he doesn't have the power to do it, that's the good news, but he can sure cause all kinds of havoc, can't he? And the second thing is that he's an angelic being. He is a creature. He was created by God he rebelled against God before the fall of man and other angels followed him so he has an army of these fallen angels maybe including those rulers authorities and cosmic powers that we have read about in verse 12 but he is the ancient adversary of God in the kingdom of God the rebellious angel and we we find uh, a number of names for him in in scripture, including devil, used 36 times in the New Testament, Satan, or adversary, 36 times in the New Testament, Beelzebul, seven times in the New Testament. He's also known as the tempter, the enemy, Belial, god of this world, prince of the power of the air. We read that in Ephesians chapter two, verse one. Dragon, the ancient, ancient serpent, father of flies, I'm sure that was at the top of the list, and murderer. And there's much that we could do in looking at these names, but time does not allow. And in verse 11, the Apostle Paul uses the devil, which in the Greek is diabolos. And if we just break down that Greek word, I want to break it down for you into this dia, meaning over. So dia would be like, someone is over on the other side of a stream and then balo means to throw and so diabolos, this name translated devil means to throw over or uh, to divide or to cause someone or something to be at variance with something else and diabolos translated the devil, the name should be understood as the one who seeks to divide people from God and his word. That, the very name, I think, details Satan's mission to divide people from God, to divide people from God's truth, to divide people from God's kingdom, to divide people from one another the divider in chief is Satan and then the third point I want to make is the extent of his power here's the good news and if you don't hear anything today hear this Satan is not all-powerful Satan is not all-present he's not omnipotent he's not omniscient he is not equal to God He is limited in power. He is bound by space and time. He needs a legion of demons. He can't be everywhere at once like like God. He's not equal with God. He's under God's sovereign control. And one example of this is in the book of Job where, where Satan had to ask permission from God to tempt Job. And then we find Satan being used as an instrument in the temptation of Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry, the temptation in the wilderness. We see Satan used as an instrument of sanctification in Peter's life. Satan will sift you, and then in Paul's life, this thrown ornament in the flesh, a messenger from Satan. And though Satan can tempt us, though he can cause great difficulty in our lives, he is not all-powerful. He is not omnipotent. He is a created being under the sovereign control of God, and that's really good news. 1 Peter 5, 8, we're told about Satan does have some power and some ability to challenge God's people. Do Do you have weaknesses in your life? Is, is there something in your life where it really doesn't take much to cause you to stumble? You know what I'm talking about? Well, Satan is a master at probing our, our weaknesses and exploiting them. Listen to this from 1 Peter 5 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Prowling around like a roaring lion, probing your weaknesses and mine to put temptation there so that we might stumble and fall and be in the sense of this passage devoured though Satan can't devour us but He surely can make it feel like we have been. (laughs) Be sober minded and watchful, be on alert 24-7 is what Peter is telling us. Be vigilant, never let your guard down and the reason is this adversary prowling around like a predator looking for prey, stalking prey to destroy the prey's faith. By deception, by lies, by falsehoods, even by false accusations. Satan has limited power. Satan has limited ability. But he does have some power and ability to prowl around and exploit your weaknesses and mine. And we do need to be sober-minded and vigilant. I was in the office one day this week and I was looking out that window over there while something was copying on our copier and I saw out right over here in the bushes I saw a cat and that cat (laughs) was crouched down you know how I can't really do justice to a cat in a pulpit but nonetheless uh, that cat was crouched down and was obviously just moving so slowly and stealthily and was stalking the prey, likely a lizard. And I was reminded of that every day, almost silly little example of just how true and how descriptive that is of what Satan is doing to you and me, prowling around stealthily. Waiting to pounce on some weakness, probing, touching here, suggesting there, falsehood there, let's see where they're weak. Satan is an able adversary. He's the tempter, he's the accuser, he's the liar, he's the deceiver. And his mission and his purpose is to, to divide us, to separate us from God, to turn us from God, to destroy faith. And if Satan tempted Jesus, if Satan probed Jesus's, Jesus to see if there were any weaknesses in the wilderness three times, three temptations, you better believe he's going to be tempting us and we need to know the enemy, right? We also need to know the enemy's tactics. In Ephesians chapter four and verse 14, Paul tells us that Satan is crafty, and here in chapter six and verse 11, Satan is described as a schemer or deceiver, and that's his agenda, to scheme, to deceive, that we would abandon Christ. And here's some, I just wanna give you some examples of of how Satan, Satan works give an example of some of his tactics. In the garden, Even Satan, Satan mixed truth with enough error to make it sound <laughs> right to Eve. Uh, in the wilderness, Satan misused scripture trying to tempt Jesus. And then we find that, that the apostle Paul speaks of false prophets, even appearing as angels of light to lead the church astray in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Thessalonians, there are those who will, bring about, who, who will uh, preach fault or give false signs and there will be wonders that will be performed all for the purpose of deceiving. There are empty promises that were made. One is in Luke, Luke 4. Hey, you can do wrong if it works out to be good, right? Bad advice, but crafty. 1 Corinthians, I think the whole book we could, we could say, that's an, that is an example of how Satan is working to bring about disunity and discord in the church. 1 Peter 5.8, probing weaknesses. And then Romans 8.3, the reason Paul said uh, that no one can bring any charge against God's elect because that's exactly what Satan tries to do. That's one of his tactics, to bring a charge against God's elect. You know, the, the reformer Martin Luther wrote one of the great hymns of the church, a mighty fortress is our God. And one of the stanzas goes like this, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. And I believe Luther reflects the teaching of Scripture with regards to Satan, with regards to the war with the enemy Satan and his tactics. The war is spiritual, though It is manifested in so many physical episodes of great suffering. The enemy is not equal to God but is a worthy adversary, full bent on destroying the faith of God's people. His tactics are crafty and deceiving. He is the schemer. So here is the question I leave us with today. Is there any hope? And the great and glorious news is there is all kinds of hope for God's people. And I want to tell you why. We find it right here in verse 10. You know, after Paul said, finally, (laughs) he says this in verse 10 Be strong in the Lord. This is Paul's final exhortation to us be strong in the Lord. And, and, and we could easily view this as we need to be strong. We need to come to Jesus and we need to hold on Him with all of our might. How many of us have tried to resist the schemes and the, the temptations of Satan in our own strength? Tell me, how many of us have tried to do that? And what is the outcome of that? Failure. Because we're resting in the wrong strength. We're resting in the wrong power. Paul is not saying just be strong in your own strength and just hang on to Jesus with all of your might. That's not what he's saying. And we know that because of what he says. A little bit later where he says this, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You see, I think that's the key right there. Be strong in the strength of might of his might it is the Lord's strength that is our hope and he is able and we know he's able if but for one thing that in the wilderness Jesus was faithful in the midst of Satan's temptation he did not fall for Satan's temptation and he remained faithful and we see that He is the Almighty. We need to know the enemy because we need to know to flee to Jesus' strength and to rest in His power that covers us in the spiritual battle and that enables us to stand firm. We. We need to flee to him knowing that his strength is sufficient and his provisions are sufficient. We'll be looking at, at God's provisions in the spiritual armament over the next few weeks. It's not that we put on our little pitiful shield. We put on the shield of faith. It's not we, that, that we pick up our little pocket knife and open it up. No, <laughs> we take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The, pop, the strength of the Lord working through the means of His armament will enable us to stand firm. John, 1 John 4, 4, little children, you are from God and have over, overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage, listen to what Luther says in this last stanza of A Mighty Fortress. Satan's rage we can endure Why? For lo, his doom is sure. One little word from Jesus shall fail him. Brothers and sisters, we're in a war. And the enemy is a worthy adversary. His tactics are very crafty and deceptive. He probes, but yet Paul's exhortation is stand firm in the Lord, meaning rest in the strength, the mighty strength that we've already sung about today of God Almighty, and we will share in the victory of of Christ. Let us pray. Father, thank you for these dear brothers and sisters here today. Thank you for our brothers and sisters scattered about this globe. And Father, though so many of our number are suffering greatly from this, the physical manifestations of this cosmic conflict, yet Lord, we pray for them that they would stand firm in the Lord in the mighty strength of Jesus. Father, I pray for us that we would do the same. Bless us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.